Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the third chapter of Acts. You'll find it on page 772 in the Pew Bible. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man, crippled from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the pace in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith, in the name of Jesus, this man, whom you see and know, was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that have given this complete healing to him, as you all can see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he has foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send Christ, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him 
will be completely cut off from among his people. Here in the morning reading. Thanks, Tom. I know that's a long passage, Um, but uh, I hope as we uh, kind of work our way through it this morning that we can make some sense of it because it really is a whole unit. We have uh, we have two events that are taking place right there together. We have uh, the healing of um, the crippled man at the gate, and uh, and then we have subsequently we have. Peter's sermon, uh, which is directly impacted by both what took place at the gate and uh, the reaction of, of all of the, the Jews who were around that saw what took place. And so Peter's sermon directly goes to the heart of what is happening. Now, there's a number of different ways we can take this. What I want to try to do is give a, a big kind of picture look at uh what I'm calling Acts first miracle, okay? And so as we think about this first miracle in the book of Acts, um, what I want is to for you to see that it shows us uh, several things about um, you know, the, the nature of the miracle is is bigger. It shows us what every other miracle in the Bible really is about um, at the same time. And so uh, this first miracle shows us Three things, the future restoration, the deeper need, and then finally, the significant cost. <clears throat> if you look at this miracle, you look at the way it, uh, it, it unfolds, and you see what, what Peter is doing there um, and, and healing this beggar, we see this uh, future restoration, okay? So you may have heard this statement um, once or twice in your life, how do you eat an elephant, one bite at a time, all right? Uh, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And the idea, uh, we don't eat elephants normally, but uh, the idea is a big project is going to be you know, handled by breaking it down and going after it piece by piece. <clears throat> when Jody and I first started uh, thinking about adoption, when that was kind of laid on our hearts, um, we began to research orphans and orphanages and places, and we were quickly overwhelmed because of the large number of orphans in, in the world. It's easy to begin to think, you know, how can we even, how can you even begin to approach this? Uh, the numbers on uh, double orphaned children, meaning they've lost both parents or they don't have both parents in the world, is about 30 million. That's a lot. 30 million children with no parents in the world. And it shocks you when you see that number and you begin to think about the need. And then when Jody and I decided on China and we chose the adoption agency, then it's all of those orphanages and it's all of the children and it's page after page after page. And those are only the ones that have made it into the system. And then you begin to think about all the children that have not even made it into the system to be adopted. And you're you're literally, you're overwhelmed. And then one day, 
we get a phone call, and it's one child. And we get to adopt that child, one bite at a time, right? Um, that's how you care for orphans in the world. That's how you care for people in the community, one family, one need at a time. If you look at the overwhelming picture, you, you, can, you can kind of get frozen with indecision. So let's think about the miracle. What's significant is what's been going on, right? So think about this. Peter has preached this massive sermon. Uh, the the uh, Jerusalem is full of Jews who have come for the festival, so they're there to hear um, and, and to participate in the festival life. And uh, the Spirit gets poured out. Peter preaches an amazing sermon, and 3,000 people come to know the Lord. And then we read, as we work through the end of chapter 2, that all kinds of people are coming to know the Lord. Each and, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, people are, are being drawn to the gospel. and The Spirit is doing amazing work. And you see these big numbers, and then we're going to see numbers like 5,000, and, and, uh, and, and then just this general descriptive terms in chapter 6, like lots of people were coming to know Jesus. Right. And so you go, wow, that that's amazing. And uh, and then we get this snapshot of one individual. And and uh, one person and he's sitting at the gate. OK, so all of these people are coming to know Christ. And then the camera zooms in on this one story, one individual. And he's brought to the gate, and his friends bring him to the gate each and every day, and he sits there because that's uh, the popular spot. Everybody's going to be passing by there, and he's there because he is going to beg for money. That's what he does each and every day. And Peter and John are making their way by. And so we you've heard the story uh, as Tom read it. Uh, it, it's fascinating, right? Peter looks at him and, and, and says, you know, look at us. And the man gave him their attention. And, um, and then as they took him by the hand, they helped him up and he instantly, his feet and ankles became strong and he jumped and he began to walk. And then they went to the temple and he was walking and jumping and praising God. Now, what's significant about that, okay, I mean, first it's, and we're, we're uncomfortable with miracles. Let's just admit it. Okay? So we're uncomfortable with, okay, really? But one of the things that you would see as you work your way through the Bible is that each and every time there's kind of a new epoch, something, when God's really doing something, it, it, miracles accompany that. And so here, that's what's taking place. The gospel is fresh and it's new and, and Jesus has been raised uh, from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. And so all of these gospel things are happening and, and miracles are accompanying that message as if to validate it. And then we get the story. And the significant part here is this walking and jumping and praising God. And why is that significant? Because it points us, so before we can look at the future restoration, we have to go back. And, and uh, Marion read for us Isaiah chapter 35. And there in verse 6, wh- what do we read? Well, we read that God is going to do a restoration. And, and there's going to be a point in time where God is going to allow the lame to leap for joy and to praise his name. 
And so right here, we get a picture of that. It's happening, right? Uh, it, what, what Isaiah foretold is beginning to take place here in this gospel event, in this miracle that Peter performs. This one individual's life has been changed. It's been transformed. Um, now, you know, these are, uh, when, when these miracles are happening like this, sometimes we think, well, what, what's, what is the purpose? It's not just a, you know, they didn't run around just, you know, bullets bouncing off their chest or, um, you know, lifting heavy, ob- you know, look, I can lift a car with my finger, you know. Um, th- the miracles are never just raw displays of power. That's not what miracles are in the Bible. It's not just, okay, look, uh, you know, Jesus, I, I can turn water into wine. Okay, you know, hey, it, it wasn't uh, uh, magician's tricks. It was for a purpose. And, and the purpose was to show that God was at, at work in the restoration of mankind. He was at work restoring humanity, right? And so what do we see? We see in this that God, God himself is the enemy of our suffering. He hates it exactly the way you hate it, exactly the way I hate it. I mean, think about the, think about the endless stream of people that would have walked past that man sitting at the gate, unable to walk because his, his legs wouldn't work right. And they walked by day after day and they, and their hearts, you know, they, they may have thrown a silver coin in. And every one of them, no doubt, wished that they could undo that man's condition right there at the gate. That they could fix it, but they couldn't. And Peter comes along, and in the power of the gospel, in the name of Jesus, he does. And he gives us that little glimmer, that little picture of of Isaiah 35. That at God's appointed time, things will be put back together, and they will be right again. And so... We get to see this happening right here in Acts chapter 3. Listen, God is no, he, he, he is no happier with the suffering in the world than you and I are. Much less so, He created this world. He created in perfection, we read in, in Genesis. It was all very good. And we, we hear about school shootings down in Florida or here or there or the other. And, you know, as Marion prayed in his prayer, the violence in, in the world and, and just on and on and on. And the disease and the suffering and around the world and right here in our midst and our own community and in our own church. And, and perhaps even in your own life. But when we see this and then when we hear Peter's sermon... And Peter preaches and he says in his sermon, right, that there is a time coming when Jesus is going to be unleashed and put everything back together. He is going to restore all things. Verse 21, heaven must receive him, that is Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore what? Everything. There's a, there's a time coming when he will restore everything. 
Is that your hope? I mean, is there a, is there a longing for that in, in your heart? There should be. Because that's what, that is what the anticipation is for us. That there is this time coming. You know, sometimes when these disasters happen, you hear people say, you know, come Lord Jesus. Well, what are they, what, what, when we say that, what are we saying? What we're saying is come Lord Jesus and make this world right again. And so in this miracle, what we get is just the beginning. It's a pinhole. It's a little bit of light coming through, and we get to see there's some anticipation there. He is going to make things right, because that is what he does. One bite at a time. This first miracle also shows us that we all have a deeper need. So think about what happens in the the miracle, in the situation. The man is at the gate. What does he want? He wants money. He can't work, okay? So he has a need each and every day to get money to pay uh, those who are helping him. Okay, providing for him. And so they're there. Uh, he's there to get money in order to survive, to live. That's what he needs each and every day. And if people don't drop money in his basket, he's not going to make it. And so that's why he's there. Now think about it. Peter and John come walking by. They see him. They look at him. They say, look at us. Look at us. Tom did a great job. He, he put some emphasis in it. Look at us. So he he looks up at him. And and he looked expectantly, didn't he? What did he want? He wanted money. These guys are going to give me some money. He must have been really excited. They've taken note of me. I mean, they didn't just throw. They weren't just going to throw. They're going to communicate to me. Maybe they're going to put some big money in in the plate, right? And notice what Peter says to him. Peter says, I don't have any money. Silver and gold have I, I think the old King James had, you know, silver and gold have I none, or some kind of way. He said, I don't have any money. But the one thing I do have, I'm going to give you. And that is the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and he began to walk. The man thought his deepest need at that moment was money. Fix me, give me some money so I can live. The deeper need was to have his legs restored and healed. And Peter heals him. Jesus heals him, really. It's a significant event because it, it highlights, right, how often are we saying, just, I, I just need some money. I just need to be fixed in this way or that way or the other way. And what the Lord says, no, you need a restoration in your life. 
You need me to intervene in your life, and, and there needs to be some restoration taking place. Maybe there's some deeper reconciliation that needs to, to take place. Maybe, right, maybe people aren't nice to me, or they're not kind to me, or, or, or I've had this interaction, this relationship is just sour, and it's terrible, and you're thinking, you know, all I need is for that person to be away from me. No, maybe what you really need is for there to be a real reconciliation in your life, or something, right? And so we all have... Um, you know, in, in counseling situation, we always say, uh, you know, whatever comes in the door as a counseling issue is never the issue. And that's the first rule that counselors learn. If, you're, if you've done any counseling, you know, right? Uh, it's kind of the iceberg; it's sticking up, and there's just gargantuan something below the surface. And so that comes in the door, and someone tells you that, and you just kind of nod, and you're thinking to yourself. What's the real issue? Why are you really here? And that's typically what you want to say. You can just cut to the chase. Why don't you just tell me why you're really here? Because there's always something below. And there is something. There's always this deeper need. And in Luke chapter 5, there's a story of the, of the uh, paralytic. That, uh, so this paralyzed man has friends, okay, rooftop friends who love him. And they care about him. And they know Jesus is in that house. And they know that Jesus can heal him. And so they get him, and they've got him on the mat, and they get on the roof, and they you know, pull the thatch off the roof, and they lower him down right there in the middle of this meeting that's going on. And in the middle of the meeting, Jesus, everything stopped. The, what in the world? <laughs> what is going on? And what does Jesus say to the man? Does he say, get up and walk? No, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now think about that. Is that what he, you think he was going, I hope Jesus tells me that my sins are forgiven, right? <laughs> so they're loaning him down through the roof. You think that's what they're thinking, right? We hope Jesus tells him his sins are forgiven. That's why we're here. No. They're, the need that they want is the restoration of his legs. And so that's why they went through all of that effort and they lower him down. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says this, which one's harder, to forgive someone's sins or to heal them? He's talking to the Pharisees. Because they were, who is this guy, forgiving sins, running around telling people their sins are forgiven? And then he says, get up and walk. What's the deeper need? Where? Where is our deeper need? Where is your deeper need? Where is God putting his finger? You know, think of the man that comes and he comes to Jesus. He's got all this wealth, right? And he, you know, I've done everything. I followed all the commandments. I'm doing it by the book. What else is there? Jesus says, go sell everything you've got. He puts his finger right on the deeper need. Go sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. See, he, he went right for that thing that needed to be worked on in that man's life. And, and so this first miracle just shows us, reminds us, There's Lord, show me that deeper spot. Show me that deeper need I've got. Where is it? What is it? Help me see it. And sometimes that's going to come through some pain. Sometimes it's going to come through some people in our lives, hopefully, right? People that we've given a, a deputy's license to, uh, to come and to, talk to us and to work on us and to challenge us, and we all need that. 
I need that. Sometimes we don't have it. And so if you don't have it, find it. Find someone in your life that you can turn loose like that to show you your deeper need. The third thing that we see here is that all of this comes, and and miracles like this come at a significant cost. There's always a significant cost involved. In the miracle, so after, after it happens, here's the problem for Peter and John, okay, is that the more their visibility increases, the more the authorities want to put them in jail and take their lives. And so they... They have to be thoughtful about this. And, and they are. And they're bold. And so they heal this beggar at the gate. And you think to yourself, okay, now hold on a second. Maybe strategically that wasn't the best move. Because when you get to chapter 4, what happens? I mean, uh, chapter, uh, where are we? Are we in chapter 3? Uh. <laughs> when you get to the next chapter, they're arrested. They put him in jail. Because of the miracle. So strategically, was this the best move? One beggar? I mean, why not, why not, I don't, the Benny Hinn thing? All of you, you know? Everybody. 500. Let's heal 500 at the same time. Let's do something really big so we can maximize our exposure. But remember, right? One bite at a time. And so they go and they do this and then what happens is it raises their visibility, and when their visibility goes up, the authorities come, and they challenge them, and then they eventually arrest them, and they put them in jail. And we're going to see this over, this cycle over and over and over again. And obviously we know, if you know from church history, most of the apostles were martyred. They were killed for their faith. And um, And so these miracles happen at... At a cost. There's always a cost involved. Um, if you go to Luke chapter 8, uh, there's a story where Jesus is moving through the crowd. The crowd is pressing in on him. Remember this? And there's a woman who has uh, a blood issue. She's had it for 12 years, the text says. And she's there. All these people are there. And they're, of course, they all want a piece of Jesus, right? And and so they're all pressing in on him and as he walks through. And she reaches out through the crowd and grabs his coat, his cloak, okay, like the, the tail of his garment. And he stops and he says, who touched me? Because power left me, right? She was healed instantly. But Jesus knew. So there's this kind of this picture like there's a cost associated. There are times in Jesus' physical life where he's tired, he's exhausted, he's praying, he's, he's laboring under the burden of the healing and the preaching and the giving and all of these things. Because there's a cost associated with service. A significant cost associated with our service. Listen, if you, if you and I, if there's no cost involved in our service, we're not doing it right. If there's no cost in your life in following Christ, time, talent, treasure, you're not doing it right. 
Because that's not what he called us to do. He called us to follow him, right? And what does he say? He says, John twelve twenty four, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and what? Dies. Okay? It's, it's useless. But when it falls into the ground and dies, what does it do? It produces. It multiplies, actually. It goes bonkers. I keep these acorns. Acorns? Acorns? I don't, I say, I say acorn. You may say acorn. I keep these on my desk. I need, I need another one. I bought them several years ago. And I'm not good at this. Uh, I, I'm just, but I have them on my desk because they remind me of my children. Who are my acorns. Right? Um, and I need one more because I only have four and I have five kids. <clears throat> But they remind me of the fact that I want my children to go out into the world and to go into the ground and to die so that they can produce oak trees. That's what I want. I want, I think of each of them as an acorn and I want them to be the DNA of that acorn to be solid, right? Think about how many I mean, if you walked out under an oak tree, how many acorns are there laying on the ground? A bunch. How many of them are going to produce an oak? Not many. And I want them to be productive. I want them to, I want them to produce. And so I think about them and, and the way that, and I'm not great about it. I'm not great about pouring my life into them the way I should as a dad. But I think about that. I want to be an acorn. I want to produce. Right? Because that's what significant cost is all about. It's about dying. It's about giving up. And that's, that's what Peter and John are doing in this miracle. You don't see it right away, but you see it over time because it begins to take its toll in their lives. They are giving themselves up in service to Christ. Is there significant cost in your life? Think of the example of Christ. Miriam prayed it. The King of Kings, sitting on a throne in heaven. What does he do? Paul tells us he lays aside the full weight of his glory in order to take on flesh, to come down, and to do it the hard way. Live before the law. Every demand the law had, he met. And then he died. In order that many might have life. Significant cost. That's what this miracle shows us. Shows us the significant cost of ministry of loving, of serving. Let me ask you as we finish up, 
Is there a significant cost in your life right now? These apostles, many that followed them, there was. I'm not asking you to go out, sell all you got, and give it to the poor. If that's what you want to do, do it. I'm not asking you to go adopt an orphan. I'm just asking in your life, in your sphere, is there significant cost in doing ministry and following Christ? The first miracle in Acts tells us there should be. Let me pray. Father, we stop this morning to come before you to give you praise and thanks for the work you've done in our lives. And Father, we do want to follow Christ and be like that grain of wheat. We want to fall into the ground and we want to produce for your kingdom, for your glory, not for ours. We pray it in Jesus' name.